Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that, um, of your love for us in it. Lord, would you, through it, show us the deep, deep love of Jesus. Um, Lord, would we receive it gladly? And would it change us uh, to the end that we would glorify you, trust you, uh, relish the gospel, love one another, love the city you've called us to. Uh, Lord, um, you are sufficient for all of it and more, more than that. So um, be at work now in us and through us in the preaching of this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start off uh, this morning with a story you're going to want to forget, um, at least uh, the next time you get on an airplane. It was uh, 50 years ago this month that Captain Robert Loft was making the final approach for Flight 401 into the Miami International Airport when he noticed that even though he thought he'd put the landing gear down, uh, the indicator light uh, didn't come on. And out of an abundance of caution, he didn't land. He circled around. He leveled off at 2,000 feet and decided to check it out. And he couldn't figure it out, so he called over his first officer. And his first officer couldn't figure it out either. But as luck would have it, there was a mechanic from Boeing on the flight in the jump seat, and they asked him to come and have a look as well. And as they all stood at the control panel trying to figure out the problem, it became apparent that no one was flying the plane. The black box would later reveal the captain yelling out, hey, what's happening here? As within seconds, the plane plunged into the Everglades and burst into flames, resulting in the deaths of 100 people, all because those entrusted with the singular task of flying the airplane became fixated on a $12 light bulb. Now, we're nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark, and, you know, since it's Advent, you might wonder why are we at the end of the Gospel instead of its beginning, uh, setting aside our commitment to preach through uh, entire books of the Bible. It's, it's worth noting that, you know, wherever we may happen to be in the Gospel, it's always the case that we're reminded week in and week out why Jesus came, the singular purpose for which he came. In fact, you know, the best of our Christmas hymns capture a really important connection. I want to call it the connection between the cradle and the cross, which is to say, as we sing, you know, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, born for that purpose. A little, a little later this morning, we're going to sing, you know, what, in, in the song, What Child Is This? That the, the child laid to rest on Mary's lap is the same one who came to offer his flesh and blood so that by his death, death would be devoured. You might say this is what he was born to do, and, and he will die to do it. He had a singular purpose, and he was undistracted in that purpose. The passage we looked at last week, in fact, ended with a promise connected to that purpose, um, where Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Uh, now, you know, to say I'm not going to eat or drink again until I whatever, if you were to make a promise like that, I will not eat or drink again until the lawn is mowed. You know, till the dishes are done, 
till I have that hard conversation. You know, what, what you would be doing there is making the strongest kind of promise. You, you know, it's, 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 it's the kind of promise where you're saying, in essence, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to do this no matter what. So, in what Jesus says there, you know, it's, it's not even really enough to call it a promise. It's really an oath. It's a vow. And then the question is, well, what exactly is Jesus vowing right after saying that his blood will be poured out for the redemption of his people, assuring them, again, that I won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, the oath is this. I will deliver a full salvation to my people. I will deliver that. Now, Jesus has just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. The meal, you know, God's people have been celebrating for hundreds of years, uh, commemorating their great salvation out of slavery and the exodus of Egypt. And there was, a, there was a kind of a script to that meal. There was a liturgy to that meal. It was punctuated with words and actions when, you know, taken together, all point to the rescue of God's people from slavery out of Egypt, you know, into freedom and relationship with Him. And here's the thing, Jesus didn't follow the liturgy. When He breaks the bread of affliction... He doesn't point back to the manna which came down from heaven, but points to himself as the one sent from heaven, who, like the bread, will be broken for his people so that he would be life for those who would otherwise die. It's the truer and greater manna. When he takes the cup, he doesn't point back to being saved from the wrath of God poured out on Egypt by putting the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the post of the door. He points to a new covenant in him for the redemption of his people, solemnified in his own blood, you know, which will be, come to be poured out on the cross. But, you know, perhaps most striking is not, about, is not what Jesus does or doesn't do in the meal, but what's actually missing from the meal. None of the Gospels mention anything about the main course of the meal, the central element of the Passover feast, the lamb. And the reason there's no mention of, of the lamb on the table is because the lamb is at the table in the person of Jesus. So just as the death of the lamb meant life for those who believed God and took the blood of the slain, slain lamb as their life, their protection from the wrath that should fall on everyone, Jesus says, I'm the lamb, points to himself. I'm the land who takes away the sins of the world. So, you know, at every turn and in every place where the meal dictated looking back to how God had redeemed to his people, Jesus says, look to me and how I am redeeming my people and how I will deliver a full salvation. Don't look back on your redemption. Look to me as your redeemer. So, you know, and immediately on the heels of that and right at the beginning of our passage this morning, you know, we're told that they sang a hymn. Nice thing to do, little religious gathering. We all know, you know, uh, when you're in those kinds of settings, you do a little singing. But I don't want to move past this too quickly, you know, with the idea that we're getting on to the serious business of the text because this is very much a part of that serious business. This is the sequence of events. Jesus takes the oath to deliver a full salvation to his people, and then singing. And, you know, I know people think they're corny these days for the most part, but, but I love the old musicals. I just do. And, 
And, and what, the, what the, the musicals get, you know, I think that no other genre of film gets is that there is a time when something must be said, but words don't suffice. You know, when the, when the guy is overcome with love for the girl, and, you know, I love you isn't enough. And there's got to be some singing, hopefully some dancing. So, you know, we're, we're at a moment sort of like that here. When Jesus and his people join in song, you know, I think it's in, in the spirit of words must be said, but we need more than words. Nothing else will do. Voices must be raised. Praises must be rendered. You know, incidentally, uh, this is exactly why we sing here every week. And, and, and I've been a pastor long enough to have a feel for why people don't sing, why people sing half-heartedly. Uh, you know, people get self-conscious about their voices. Sometimes we're not in the mood. You know, sometimes it's, you know, the church isn't delivering my favorite style of music. But Jesus and his disciples sang hymns uh, with little regard for good voice. Um, we know the mood was not happy. They're filled with anguish and personal struggle, and still they sing so that their heart is not withheld from the Lord, but the entirety of their person is yielded. You know, so come to church with some cough drops and be ready. Sing loud. One of the more famous stories in the history of the church is the story of the conversion of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, and um, you know, this, this occurred at Aldersgate in England, but, but, but a, a lesser-known story, but critical to that conversion, was an experience he had before it when he was um, a missionary. Now, Wesley's a fascinating figure in many ways, um, not least because his conversion came after he was ordained as an Anglican priest. He was sent uh, to serve as a missionary in the colonies to the state of Georgia, and on his way to Georgia, he experienced something that would change him forever on the journey, the ship on the way across the Atlantic. On that trip were some Moravians. These were uh, evangelical Lutherans. And, and Wesley was a great journal writer, and he said a lot about these uh, Lutherans in his journal, and he records how eager they were to take the worst jobs on the ship, jobs none of the English people would take. You know, it was all below them. But they would, they'd say, no, we want to do it. And he, he recorded that they, that they insisted it was good for their proud hearts. Uh, that they explained that uh, their loving Savior had done so much more for them. And Wesley recorded an entry on January 25th of 1776 when a storm hit the ship. And this was no ordinary storm. It was one so intense that it actually broke the mainsail mast. Uh, that waves were crashing over the ship and water was pouring into the decks. Uh, and he wrote that they were, there was a long time in which he was absolutely certain that they were going to go down and everyone was going to die. But he recorded something else uh, just as remarkable. While that storm was raging and while the English were scrambling and screaming for their lives, the Moravians decided it was a perfect time to have a church service which consisted mostly of singing psalms. And after the storm had finally passed, he, he asked one of these Moravians, you know, did you, did, you, were you, did you fear for your life? And the guy says, I thank God, no. And Wesley pressed a little further, and he said, well, did, like, did the women and children fear for their lives? <laughs> and the man said, no, 
Our women and children are not afraid to die. And then Wesley, Wesley wrote in his journal that he witnessed in that experience something even more awesome than the storm, and that was the difference in the hour of trial between him that fears God and him that fears him not. More powerful than the storm is singing and the fear of God. We're in the part of the gospel in which Jesus is entering his own storm, one I think infinitely more terrifying than what Wesley and the Moravians had experienced, a storm which doesn't merely threaten to swallow him up in the waters, but one in which it is certain that he will be swallowed up in the wrath of God for sin on the cross, a death and a judgment for sin that should have fallen to us. But there's another storm uh, kind of brewing here as well, um, and that's one that threatens to swallow up his disciples. In, in unbelief. Uh, it turns out everyone, you know, is, is needful of the steadying surety of God's person and work as these storm clouds gather, so they sing. And, you know, and central to that comfort is God's sovereignty. Uh, you, you know, the, the knowledge that even as the circumstances seem to shift in directions no one welcomes, even as it all looks chaotic, God is in total control. In fact, this passage is really punctuated with just constant reminders of the certainty that God's will is being carried out perfectly, and I want to say precisely, according to the Scriptures, exactly as God has planned it, exactly. Even before Jesus set foot through the city gates, he told the disciples to go and find a particular animal commandeered for his particular purposes. He he informs them of a particular man carrying a, a jar of water whom they are to follow. When, when they get anxious about making preparations for the meal, Jesus says, you know, it's all been prepared at a particular place, in a particular time, in a particular house, in a particular room. And astonishingly, even though, you know, this, that which might cause us to question God's plan, this revelation that Jesus has just given that one of his very own will betray him, Jesus is... is uh, insistent that that does not lie outside of God's sovereign will either. So when he reveals the fact of the betrayal, he grounds it in the plan of God and in the purposes of God and as that which is being carried out according to the Scriptures. The first thing he says after acknowledging his betrayer is, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. One of my favorite gospel songs is a song called, God, My God Can Do Anything But Fail. (laughs) And songs like that get written because of what we see to be true here, that what is happening isn't a failure of God's plan, but it is a fulfillment of God's plan. Now, that's not to say what Jesus has shared is well received. Uh, We've just seen how this revelation sets a crisis off among his disciples. I mean, each of them, you know, Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and they're all going around the table going, it's not me, is it? Is it you? Is it him? Who is it? But in fact, the most surprising development isn't that Judas isn't the, among the most surprising developments is that Judas isn't the only one who'll turn from Jesus. Jesus says it very plainly here in our passage in verse 27. He says, all y'all are going to fall away. All of you. And supporting that statement, again, a scripture. He quotes Zechariah 13 saying that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. 
But, but what exactly does Jesus mean when he tells them that you will all fall away? Well, this word for fall away is important, I think, to kind of focus on. The word is scandalizo. Um, it's a word from which we get scan, scandal, scandalized. Jesus says to his disciples, all of you are going to be scandalized. What does that mean? Well, I think it's helpful to look to a place where Jesus has used that word before. He's, he's used it in chapter 4 in the parable of the soils. Now, this is going back a little way, and I'm not going to review that whole parable except to say that Jesus describes one of those soils, the rocky soil, as representing a people who, he says, have no root in themselves, who endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they, and, and here it is again, fall away. Scandalizo. They're scandalized. And, and what Jesus described, you know, in a parable then becomes really palpable now. He, he's been telling them that tribulation and persecution are coming. And when it comes, these guys, all of them, will be like the rocky soil. They've endured for a while. They've had their moments. They've received the word with joy. They've looked promising. But, but when the heat comes, when the storm bears down, they'll wither. And Jesus doesn't say this might happen or, you know, uh, Peter, you know, it's going to happen to you, but John, you'll be fine. <laughs> he says it's going to happen to all of them. And you get a sense of the force of, of Jesus' statement from the reaction to it. Not, not, you know, not one to take things lying down. Peter steps up and says, look. Even though all, they, all of them are going to fall away, I won't. Now, you know, if you didn't know anything else, you know, I want to say this looks like an inspiring moment. I, I don't know about you, but I love these moments in the movies. You know, where, where, where everybody's kind of like, I don't know if I want to, you know, raid that bunker. And then the one guy steps forward and goes, I'll do it. If it even if it means I'll die, I'll do it. And, and you know, you love that. You know, and, and I want to say, you not only love it on the silver screen, we seek it out in our lives. I mean, go, go to the self-help section in any bookstore, and, and you will find bookshelves heaving with volumes urging us to have more confidence in ourselves, more self-esteem, more assertiveness. You know, and I want to say, arguably, there's nowhere you'll find more of those heaving bookshelves than in the Christian bookstore. Uh, you know, and if you're not a big reader, no problem. There are um, sermons, retreats, Bible studies, seminars, podcasts, Instagram reels, all kind of nourishing this notion that, you know, the biggest problem you and I have in our lives is a lack of self-esteem and confidence. We've got to get it. There's a professor of economics at UC Berkeley, a guy named Dr. Stefano Della Vigna, and his area of academic research focuses largely on uh, this idea of people's confidence in economic decision-making. It's really important, right? We talk about that a lot right now in this recession or whatever. Um, and his research has made the definitive determination that overconfidence is a very general feature of human psychology. And he's demonstrated it in his research in all kinds of ways. And again, he's an economist, so he's focusing on certain areas. But, you know, he, he, he says there's all kinds of ways we hurt ourselves financially, economically, because of our overconfidence. 
You know, whether it's signing up for the gym memberships that we don't use, the weight loss plans that we'll never commit to, the timeshares we're certain we're going to use all the time that we never even go to, teaser rate credit cards that end up costing us more in money than the benefits that they'll ever deliver. You know, again and again. And, you know, but, but again, if, if Hollywood were writing the script, Peter's self-assertion would be the moment where the music would swell and Jesus would go, finally. One of you finally is coming through. I've been waiting for this moment. A little courage. But instead, it's costly. Uh, the overconfidence is deeply costly. In fact, this is one of the darkest moments in the gospel. For starters, notice the impact of Peter's assertion on the community. They'll all fall away, but not me. It's so often the case that those most insistent that they don't need saving are the very ones who insist that everyone around them are beyond saving. So, so Jesus doesn't take Peter's offer as a cause for celebration. Um, in fact, he receives it as yet one more instance of his opposition. Peter has famously opposed Jesus before, most forcefully in reaction to Jesus teaching them about how it was necessary that he would go to the cross, that he would suffer these things and be rejected um, and, and be killed and, and be raised again in three days. And Peter reacted to that by pulling Jesus aside, putting his finger in his chest, chewing him out and going, that is never going to happen. And using the same word that he had earlier described about what he had done to demons, Mark tells us that Jesus rebukes Peter. As one so at odds with him, he calls him Satan, telling him to get behind him. Now, you put that account alongside this one, and, and again, you might imagine that Peter's progressed. Before he was oppositional to Jesus, now he's offering himself to Jesus, and therein lies the problem. Because underneath, underneath both the heated opposition and the heroic resolution is the same thing, and that is that Peter is putting himself, forcing himself to the center. I've heard your plan, Jesus. I've got a better plan. Now that you've told me about my weakness, Jesus, I want to let you in on a little secret. I'm actually very strong. I'm much stronger than these guys. So what's common to the opposition and the offering of himself is this. And this is why it's dark. I don't need a savior. You know, it turns out that Jesus isn't the only one making oaths, but Peter's making them as well. Jesus' oath is that he'll deliver on a full salvation, and Peter's oath is the same. He'll deliver on salvation as well, just so long as we set aside your plan A, Jesus, that involves your death so that your people will live, and instead go with my plan, the plan that Peter will die in order that Jesus can live. And look, it would be one thing if, if Peter said, you know, Jesus, we're tired of all this talk of being arrested, killed, resurrected. We're out of here. I'm looking for a better Messiah. But he never says, I'm leaving you. Instead, he insists, I am loyal to you. And here's why that marks such a grim moment in the gospel when we see that his loyalty always necessitates a rejection of Jesus' plan. 
and a replacement of that plan with what he imagines to be a better plan, we, dis- we discover, in fact, that he has loyalty, very deep loyalties, but not to Jesus, but to himself. Tragically, Peter finally proves himself a leader, but a leader in getting everyone to join, him, join in on the self-saving game. So that Mark reports, you know, that all the other disciples begin to chime in and say the same thing that Peter has just said. And the wild thing is that even as they're insisting they'll never fall away, the reality is they already have. They're scandalized by the actual gospel. They're in the room proving to be rocky soil, at first receiving it with joy, but once the cross with the humiliation and the tribulation and the persecution comes into view and becomes a certainty, they are withering, working to exchange God's plan for salvation for one that seems better to them. Jesus has said, God will strike down his shepherd and his sheep will be scandalized and scattered. They'll fall away. And we've, we've seen the scandal, how they're getting scandalized and now we're seeing how they're being scattered. Mark tells us that they all began to speak for themselves, insisting that despite what Peter said, they'll never fall away either. Now, it's worth pointing out that this confidence is coming from the same people who within literally just the last few minutes weren't sure whether or not it was them who would betray Jesus. You know, going around the table, it's not, it's not me, is it? Ironically, it seems to me that their uncertainty about whether they denied Jesus actually showed greater self-awareness than the insistence that they would die for him. Because at least the uncertainty contained within it a kernel of understanding that, you know, I'm just not as faithful as I imagine myself to be. That, that perhaps I might be in need of a greater faithfulness than I can produce out of myself. Peter's led the way in asserting himself And Jesus delivers a devastating truth to him. He says, Peter, not only will you not die for me, you will deny me. And you'll do it three times this very night. Three times. All in the few hours that come between this conversation and sunup, that is to say his denial of Jesus will be a thoroughgoing, all in, not doubling down, but tripling down, denial. And you can imagine Peter's devastation at hearing this. You can, you can see it in his reaction when he says, I'll never die to you. I'll never, I'll, you know, never, I'll, I'll die for you. It's kind of like I've given you my oath. You know, I've shown you the strongest loyalty I can muster. Now you're telling me in the next few hours I'm going to deny you and I'm going to do it three times? I mean, how is that even possible? It's one thing to fail once, you know, but you know how it goes. You, you fail big and then, and then there's a little education in that. You've learned your lesson. You know, it's a hard education, but usually works in such a way that regret, you know, kind of kicks in. And then there's a, reli- a little bit of resolve, and you're like, I'm never going to do that again. But, but, you know, just theoretically, let's say you follow up the first spectacular failure with another one just like it. Well, then, you know, surely regret and resolve will be so intense, so shameful, that there's no way it's even possible for, for one more spectacular failure Because when that happens, it can only mean one thing. You are helpless and you are hopeless. Bereft of anything within you to steer yourself or to steady yourself or to save yourself. It's a hard thing. It's very hard to contend with the reality that your problems go deeper than you ever 
imagined and that you can't solve them yourself and that you're far weaker and more foolish than, than you or anyone ever knew. And yet it's also something else, that kind of experience. It's essential to receiving the grace of Jesus. Essential. It's essential because if you ever hope to know the real Savior, self-salvation has to die. If you ever hope to know the depths of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, you've got to first contend with the depths of your own failure. It's only through the experience of failed faithfulness that you can find in Jesus a faithfulness that never fails. Peter did what we've all done, and if we're honest, do all too readily still. He's, in this spectacular way, transferring trust away from Jesus onto himself. And, and, you know, proving himself uh, unfaithful. The disciples are rocky soil, and so are we. I don't know where your relationship with Jesus is. Your faith may be in him. It may, be, it may not be in him. Uh, some of us have been able to endure for a while. Some of us have, you know, attained a measure of worldly success. Some of us on religiosity. Some of us on our rejection of it. Until, you know, that diagnosis comes. That unexpected death, that failure, that embarrassment, that shame, that derailment of the plan for my best life now, that part of being a Christian, you know, that doesn't sit well within the culture in which I live and move and have my being. All manner of things that scandalize us, that cause us to fall away and fall apart. And here's what's true of all of us. We have no root in ourselves but we do have it in Christ. Jesus Christ who identifies himself as the vine uh, so that if we're attached to him, there's life. Jesus Christ who is the good soil, who graciously graciously calls us and urges us to plant our life in him as those who, you know, unless a seed dies, it will never go to life. We go to that soil and die to ourselves so that we could come to life. and, And he assures us that when we do that, will bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Jesus is the only one who actually listened to God's word, the only one who actually accepted it, the only one who actually obeyed it, not seeking to preserve his own life, but willingly losing it so that we would have life in him. Jesus assures them that he'll be struck and they'll be scattered and he'll endure the wrath on the cross that should have fallen to us for our sin. And critically, he provides another assurance, and that is that after he's raised, he'll go ahead of them. He says that here, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. The the language here conveys, I think, something far more profound than just getting from this place to that place. He's, He's telling them that the resurrection is true and I'll meet you again. That, that after he is struck to the death, he'll live and he'll, as the good shepherd, gather those scattered scandalized sheep, frightened, exposed, directionless, defenseless. He'll gather them to himself. He'll undo the damage done to his people. He saves scandalized and spectacularly failed and self-styled saviors like you and me. 
so that ours would be a full salvation, that He'd deliver on that just as He promised. Jesus has done this for His people, and this table, you know, pictures that reality for us week in and week out, doesn't it? We, we, what do we do in our week? We fall away, we fail, we scatter. We get scandalized. And what does He do? He goes ahead of us, and He gathers us here, not demanding of us, but delivering grace. So let's go to his table now. Let's repent of our sin. Let's repent of our self-saving. Let's rely on Jesus and remember his oath to us that truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you and me in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Um, for the greatness of your salvation. Thank you for revealing the truth of yourself to us and the truth of ourselves, of ourselves to us. Uh, Lord, thank you for the freedom in knowing that we, um, that, that the aim in life is not for us um, necessarily to succeed and be self-sufficient and die with, you know, whoever dies with the most toys wins. But instead, Lord, it is to find in you a Savior. It is to repent of our sin and to repent also of all the ways in which we imagine that um, we don't need you for our very life. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, would you attend to us here, um, Lord, to the end that we would be fed and sustained and that we would, having been fed, um, Lord, give you praise. Um, that our songs would be, well, as Wesley wrote in another place, that they would be sung lustily and with good courage, not because of who we are, but because we have a great Savior. So, um, Lord, uh, feed us here at this table, sustain us, and help us to praise you, give you praise worthy of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.